Hear now the word of the Lord. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothraki, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We were staying in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, well, before we jump into that text, let us pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you have spoken to us in your scriptures, but, but most preeminently through your, your son, Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. Um, and so we all, we all come in with things happening in our lives, questions we have, things we're wrestling through. And so we open this space for you to speak by your spirit into our lives, what we need to hear. So God, do that, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, as Joseph mentioned, uh, my name is, is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And in an hour, I'm going to be on sabbatical. Uh, and I've been prepping for that for uh, a number of weeks now. Our van is, is loaded up. We're going to leave from this parking lot to Rocky Mountain National Park. And for the next two plus weeks, tour the western United States. Uh, I've been pre pre uh, prepping several weeks by not trimming my beard at all. I plan to have a full sabbatical-sized mane by the end of uh, my three months here. In fact, it was long enough that we had my sabbatical lunch this week, and the senior pastors were a little uh, troubled, so they had a ruler to make sure that my beard was still within Christ community pastoral length acceptability. Uh, I passed just, uh, just barely. Leewood is much shorter uh, of an expectation. You can't have quite this long of a beard in Leewood, but because we're out here on the western frontier in Shawnee, we can let it go a little crazy, although uh, depending on how long I preach, I may be out of proper beard length, so if I am, Joseph's going to come up and trim a little off to, to make sure we're within specifications. Uh, but I, I've, been I've just been preparing for this for a number of, of weeks and, and kind of wanted to leave with some thoughts on what I'm going to be thinking about on sabbatical and invite you to think about some similar things. And, and our passage kind of through the lens of this woman leader, Lydia, as well as the Philippian church, I think it's a good launching off point uh, for the things I'm going to be wrestling through on sabbatical, and I invite you to, to think through and wrestle through as, as well. And, and Lydia is one of my favorite characters in the scriptures because of what we know about her and what we know about the Philippian church, and she was clearly a, uh, a dynamic leader within that community that's, uh, that helped the growth of the church through the, the, the world, through Paul's church planning efforts. Uh, so this morning we're going to look kind of through the lens of Lydia and Philipp, uh, Philippi as my send-off into three months away from y'all. And uh, three ideas, three things I'm thinking about and I want you to think about in this sabbatical season. Uh, hospitality, <coughs> formation, and healing. So first, hospitality. Uh, whenever Paul would go to a, a new city in uh, his church planning efforts, he would always start in the synagogue. 
Uh, he would hope to convince uh, some of the Jewish people there of the truth of Jesus as their Messiah and then sort of send the mission off into the city from there. But in Philippi, there was not a synagogue, so there were not many Jewish people. But there was a women's prayer meeting by a river. And so Paul goes to the women's prayer meeting, preaches the gospel there, and this woman, Lydia, is converted. She believes in the gospel and becomes a Christian. And we're not told much about her other than that she was a seller of purple goods. Which actually tells us quite a bit. Uh, in that day, to, uh, to have something that was purple was a sign of, of wealth. That purple dye was very expensive. So you only owned purple if you were wealthy. So if you were a dealer in purple goods, that meant you were a wealthy person yourself. So Lydia was a wealthy woman. But beyond that, she was a seller of uh, goods to wealthy people. Which meant she moved in very powerful circles and probably with someone who traveled a great deal because there wouldn't be a lot of people in Philippi who could afford purple. So she would have to travel around the Roman world selling her purple goods, which also means she's probably an incredible entrepreneur, businesswoman, just sort of uh, just this dynamic leader selling purple goods, doing her thing, making money, and uh, would have been an, an influential leader and person in, uh, in Philippi and in the surrounding region. And this is the woman who becomes a Christian, is converted into the way of Jesus. And what's great is as soon as she's converted, we read that um, she says to Paul and Silas and to Luke, who's writing Acts, but it's clear Luke was here when this happened, because he says us. Says, After she was baptized, her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And what might seem like a nice little, oh, they had, they had dinner together, is actually a, a core element of the mission of the early church through the book of Acts, which is the practice of hospitality. That was a core mission of the way the church lived out its mission was hospitality. And while we might read that as Lydia meets Paul one night at a prayer meeting, she's converted, and then that night says, hey, Paul, come to my house and... Um, and stay, probably, uh, this more likely was, was over an extended period of time, and Paul and Silas probably extended hospitality first to Lydia and had her into uh, th their space where they shared a meal together. They shared hospitality together. And it was through that, that practice, through that reality, that Lydia is converted into the way of Jesus. And you see this throughout the book of Acts. People are gathering around a table, practicing hospitality as a means of converting people into the faith. And there's a really great book that details how this happened, what this looked like, uh, called Saved by Faith and Hospitality by one of my professors at Trinity, uh, Dr. Josh Jipp. And he says this about hospitality and why it was such a central practice of the early church's mission. Uh, Dr. Jipp writes, Hospitality is the act or process whereby the identity of the stranger is transformed into that of guest." The primary impulse of hospitality is to create a safe and welcoming place where a stranger can be converted into a friend. Hospitality is a safe and welcoming place where a stranger is can, be, can be converted into a friend. So I just want to reflect on, I, I don't have time to like make the case, hey, this is all over the book of Acts. Hopefully you can just trust me. This is all over the book of Acts. So why is hospitality so crucial to the mission of the early church? Why was this such a crucial practice as they took, as Paul took the gospel from uh, Jerusalem and out into the Gentile world and saw enormous success, people coming to faith? Why was hospitality such a central practice 
to that. And there's lots of reasons, but I want to name two this morning. The first is that we are all exiles. The American theologian Taylor Swift has a song called Exiles. Uh, it's also with Bon Iver, Justin Vernon. If you're like, Tim's a Taylor Swift fan, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Um, it's because Bon Iver is a part of this song as well. But the, the song is just an idea of losing a relationship and feeling like an exile, feeling not at home in this world. And we all have that experience. We're wondering, what, what do other people think of me? Should I have said that? Can I be honest with this person? And if I am honest with pers- this person, will they, they, they receive me? Will our friendship stay intact if I say what's really on my mind or what I'm really wrestling through? And that's ultimately what hospitality is, right? It's a safe and welcoming place where a stranger, someone with opposing views, a different vision of the world, is given a safe and welcoming space to be, be in communion with you. And we all have this experience of wondering, is there a place where I can actually experience peace and rest and home? Is there anywhere I can go and just be at home, just be received as I am with all my questions, my doubts, my wrestling? And here's the deal. If Taylor Swift feels like an exile, a woman who's unfathomably wealthy, like at the top of her game, singer-songwriter, right, has a, like a fan-following nickname, Swifties, like, you know, like she's made it, and she feels like an exile. And if that's true for her, then, I mean, you got to be honest, what chance do you have? Or do I have to not feel like an exile in this place, to wonder, can I really be received as I, I am in all my brokenness? And I think this is what, a part of what made Jesus so appealing to people. Because you see Jesus going around, and he just ate and drank with everybody. There was, there, you will not find a single instance in the gospel of Jesus when he's invited into a home and he says, I don't want to eat with you. Even the people who actually hated him and wanted to murder him, you find Jesus in their homes eating with them. Granted, those are the least fun parties because they start, like, they practice bad hospitality with Jesus um, by, like, insulting him and saying, like, asking him trapping questions. But, but he's still there eating with them. There's no one Jesus was not willing to share table fellowship and hospitality with. And this is a major mark of his ministry. So, again, Dr. Jip, in his book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, he writes... One of the major marks of Jesus' table practices is his indiscriminate and non-calculating offer of hospitality to all people. Did you hear that? Jesus was indiscriminate and non-calculating in his offer of hospitality to all people. And this might easily seem to conflict with Jewish heroes who separated themselves from impure people and their food. Instead, Jesus eats with tax collectors, uh, a sinful woman, the poor and ritually unclean, his disciples, even with the Pharisees. And it's no surprise then that Israel's religious leaders are said to have taken offense and complained about the guests to whom Jesus extended hospitality. Jesus is tangibly extending God's friendship to those who, in the eyes of others, are not righteous, have a low status, and are viewed as unworthy of friendship with God. Of course, the way Jesus summarizes this mission himself is in um, is in Luke's gospel, and he says, I'm, I've come as a doctor for the sick. The righteous don't need a doctor, the sick need a doctor. That's why I'm spending my time and have an indiscriminate and non-calculating hospitality practice. Jesus ate with anyone. 
and the religious leaders hated him for it because they knew who was impure. They knew who had the bad theology. They, they knew who, who should be with, uh, rejected and, and shunned. And Jesus was found eating with those people nonstop. And it's just of this dichotomy, because this is often true of religious people. They decide who's impure, who's unworthy, who should get our, our judgmental eye. And we withdraw hospitality. Based on what people think about politics, or theology, or race, or a number of issues. You're out of bounds. And we withdraw fellowship. And it sets up attention. The question around, will our table and hospitality practices mirror that of Jesus or mirror that of the religious leaders who hated him? Do our table practices and fellowship and the way we, we treat and, re- and think of other people, do they reflect more actually the Pharisees whom Jesus rebuked or Jesus whom the Pharisees rebuked? But ultimately that is the heart of the gospel is that Jesus ate with anyone as a response to our exile. The Son of God invades our world. And for all of us who sing along with Taylor Swift that we're exiles, we have the God of the universe come and say, let's come home. That's why I'm here. That's why he extended table fellowship to all people and why we as a church should be an extension of his mission, offering similar table fellowship to the world where there are not preconditions to share a table, to hear a story, to learn about someone else, but to enter into hospitality with them. So we're all exiles, and the gospel hospitality is a response to that. It's an invitation back home. But then second is is that in Christ we have have peace, right? That's that's a central part of what the gospel promises to us. So in in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 12, Paul unpacks the gospel as God's bringing us who are alienated exiles away from him, bringing us back home. And here's what he says. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's speaking primarily to Gentile people here. So if you're you're a non-Jewish person, we were not a part of the covenant promise of God through Abraham. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, this promise includes the whole world. So you and I are now brought in. If you're not a a Jewish person, but Paul goes on and he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he's saying two things there. One thing he's saying is, if if you receive the gospel, your alienation from God has been covered and now you can come home to him. You've been brought near to Christ. But he's actually saying more than that because Jews and Gentiles did not get along. And he's actually saying, now you, these two people who cannot eat with one another, God has broken down the hostility and enabled you to be in community with, the, with one another once again. All through this gospel mission, hospitality, presence, sharing a table together. We don't have to be separate anymore, Paul says. So our alienation first is covered through Christ to God. We can come home to God, but we can also come home to one another now because we are at peace. And yet, how many of us actually believe that? Like we just inhabit the world as like, man, I'm not, I'm not an exile anymore. I'm at peace. I'm at home with God. I'm not concerned. I mean, I care what other people think of me in the sense of I, I want to represent Christ well to them, but I'm not, 
I'm not crippled by the opinions of other people. I'm not worried over what other people might think of me. How many of us actually live in this just non-anxious, at peace at all times existence in the world? None of us, right? Why is that? I mean, if the gospel is true, and we're at home with God now, we're at peace with God, Jesus has extended his fellowship to us and covered our sins by his own blood, why, are we, why do we struggle to live at, at peace? There's lots of ways to answer that, but I think one reason is we as, we as Christians are no longer practicing that hospitality table fellowship the way Jesus did. We actually practice something that's more akin to the Pharisees, and it's why we don't, we don't have this sense within, within a community of the church that we are, we are safe, we are at home, we are at peace. Uh, one, I've told this story before, but um, one of the reasons why I'm a pastor is uh, when, we were, when I was in high school, we started a high school worship service, and there was a, a girl named Elise who was a couple years younger than me. And she was just this outgoing, extrovert, super nice person, and she just made everyone who was new feel super welcome at every worship service. And I just decided, like, I just saw how powerful that was. I'm like, I'm going to start doing that. Um, the only problem is, like, if we were to create a list of people who should do that, I would be at the bottom of that list, because I'm introverted, right? If you and I, like, if we went golfing this afternoon and we didn't say a word to one another, I'd be like, what a, that was a great afternoon. What a, thanks for spending that time with me. Like, that's how we would be. But if you're an extrovert, you'd be like, there's something wrong with Tim. He hates me. Like, what's, what's happening here? And I'd be like, we had a great time. Like, that was, let's do it again, right? That's, that's what an introvert is like. So I'm the last person that should be sitting down next to anybody and trying to make them feel welcome. And yeah, I just committed myself to that, to that practice. And even weird introvert me, just sitting next to new people, right? Extending non-judgmental open fellowship. Hey, what's your name? Who are you? Why are you here? And that was powerful in people's lives. And that wasn't even over a table, over a meal, over hospitality. It was just at a church service, sitting next to someone else in a chair. And it's because that's all, all of us want that. We just want someone to sit down next to us and ask us, how are you? What's your name? And hope that when you tell them actually how you're doing, you don't get judgmentalism back, judgment, arrogance, pride, condescension. You just want to be received where you are. And the church was so good at that. Not because you could say, oh, well, do, do whatever you want, be whoever you are, it doesn't matter. But because when you do that for someone else, you create a safe environment where a stranger can be converted into a friend and you open up the possibility for the gospel to actually speak meaningful uh, grace into others' lives because you're a safe person. Because who they are Whoever they are, in all their brokenness, is received the way Jesus received people in all of their brokenness. And that's ultimately why, uh, one of the reasons why, six and a half years ago, you know, we had kind of two choices as a family. One was to go back to Chicago and return to the church that we, we came from. And the other was to plant this campus. And a couple of reasons we, we did this. One is, if you've ever been to Chicago in the winter, um, especially in March, it's just... It's like, that's, I think that's what hell is, actually. Um, it's awful. Uh, it's just, I was like, I don't want to be in March in Chicago anymore, ever again. Um, but the other was, I just know, like, once a church gets to a certain point, you start to lose what a church plant has, which is the spirit of hospitality. You start to become internal. You start to fight over, you got too much time on your hands, you start fighting over dumb things. Color of carpet, politics, theology. It's just, we get, you got too much time on your hand, and you start to lose focus 
of what Jesus did, which was just say, hey, whoever wants to eat, we're here. Let me hear your story. Let me get to know you. And study after study shows new churches are the best at that. Old churches, the longer you exist, the more you get off mission from Jesus. And we're in a moment now, six and a half years in. We, we're in a building. Things get a little comfortable. We can start to turn internal to our own desires, our own hopes, what we want to see happen. And I don't want us to do that. And that's one of the things I'm thinking about going into sabbaticals. I do not want us to become about ourselves. Moreover, when you read further into Acts 16, one of the things that's really cool about the Philippian church is you get three conversion narratives, and they, they are completely different people. All right, so Lydia, businesswoman extraordinaire, she's, just, she's a world shaker. Um, I want to say, say Anna Wintour, but I'm like, is that a real person? I don't really know like, the women's business world quite that, you know, like if we were talking sports, we'd be fine, but that's obviously guys. But she is a, a businesswoman extraordinaire. Then the second person converted is a, is a slave girl who was demon-possessed and uh, oppressed by her owners. So someone who is a slave and oppressed is liberated by Paul, freed, becomes a Christian. And the third conversion is a Philippian jailer who was probably ex-military, blue-collar guy, probably rough around the edges. And now it's like, that's, imagine that church potluck, right? Imagine those three people at the Kurtz's lunch later today. And you got like a, a girl who's just been oppressed from a demon. She's, she's, she's incredibly poor, vulnerable. Then Lydia's having lunch with her. I mean, this is, it's just so incredible to think about. And the question we should probably be asking is why, at least in, in our own Western church experience, is the church often divided along socioeconomic lines or along background lines? Why most of us in here probably have a very similar background. Why is that? I think a part of that is we've lost the table practice fellowship. We don't have much room for people with different visions of the Christian life. We have a very narrow vision of the Christian Life. And so when the jailer walks in, and his language isn't quite what it probably should be at a church potluck, we don't give him the space to, to figure that out over time. Or when the economic slave grows, been, she's been oppressed. And maybe she doesn't come in with like the most emotionally healthy view of relationships because of the way she's been treated for her entire life. We don't give her the space to hurt and be broken. This, this, this idea of, of hospitality and table fellowship is so crucial to the mission of the church. And I don't know the best ways to live that all. I already told you, like, I'm the introvert, right? It's like I'm the, the worst guy to tell you how to be hospitable other than just sit down and listen to others and be that safe and welcoming place that creates the environment where a stranger to the ways of Jesus could become his friend. Hospitality, one. Second, uh, formation. I just finished the, uh, the third season of the podcast, Gangster Capitalism, <clears throat> which is a look at uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. and his leadership of Liberty University. And um, there was one episode in particular that was just re- it was really hard to listen to because they dove into Liberty's view of, of, of marriage and human sexuality, which while I, I, the rest of the podcast, I would have very, different disagree- or very strong disagreements with the way Jerry Falwell lived his life. Ultimately, their theology around human marriage is, is the same as, as ours here at Christ's community. And as that, detail, as that episode went along, what was clear was the view of, of the orthodox Christian position of marriage, the, histo- the, church, the view the church had for 2,000 years until, until 20 minutes ago, is not just wrong. It's actually abusive. It's oppressive. It needs to be stamped out. And I think it's in many ways, as Christians, we're entering into a world where if you have an orthodox vision of Christianity, 
that's increasingly going to be the view. Increasingly the view of God is not just that, well, there is no God, but actually, well, God is bad. And the church and religion has been har- uh, caused for great harm in the world. And we need to um, stamp those views out as opposed to let them flourish. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was a disturbing, I mean, the ominous music as is, is the Bible is, is quoted. And the question I've been wrestling with, certainly going to wrestle with this going into sabbaticals, how do Christians stay faithful to Jesus in this environment? And how do we raise kids faithful to Jesus in this environment? Um, and I want to say, say two things to that. First is, this is not new. This actually happens in Acts 16. So Lydia gets converted, they have nice fellowship together, and then Paul continues to preach the gospel. And then we read this in verse 20. Uh, and when they, so Paul frees this, this slave girl from her economic, or her demonic oppression. This makes everyone angry. So they bring Paul to the magistrates. Paul decides to the magistrates. And they say, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. I feel like if you're into underlining your Bible, that's a great little line to underline. Because we, as Christians, in our own cultural context, we advocate customs that are not lawful, acceptable, however you want to say it, for Americans to accept or practice. And the question becomes, how do we stay faithful to the teachings of Jesus when we're going to face enormous pressure to abandon them? And the first thing, as I said, is to recognize this is not new. And I was beginning to think that. Actually, we're entering into a new season, a new reality. But, that, but then I asked this question. This is, a, this is a provocative question. When has it ever been easy to be a faithful Orthodox Christian in the American context? Could you ever live out the full vision of the kingdom of God in this context and not face potentially enormous backlash? So imagine you're living in Atlanta, Georgia, 1859, and your vision of human beings is the Genesis 1 vision of human beings. All human beings are made in the image of God. Unique dignity, value, worth, incredible um, beauty and glory. And therefore, all human beings should be treated the same, the same way. There's no human that's, that's inherently superior to another human being. And you got up in your church in Atlanta, Georgia, and you just say, listen, I think regardless of your ethnicity, your background, where you grew up, the color of your skin, everyone's made in the image of God should be treated equal. What would have happened to you? Probably... Not good things. It's enormously difficult to have an orthodox vision of race in Christian America, or in America as a Christian in the 1859s. And the reality is 100 years later in Atlanta, Georgia, it would have been no different. It still would have been impossible for you to get up in your church and articulate a Christian vision of human beings in 1959, in 1969. I'm not quite sure when that moment shifted or changed. But the reality was our cultural moment put enormous pressure on Christians to abandon Genesis 1. To abandon Galatians 2 where Paul said, do not separate Gentiles and Jews from one another. Because the moment you do that and you start separating people and having them eat together based on ethnicity, you are are abandoning the gospel itself. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2. It would have been enormously difficult as a Christian to teach and say that for much of American History. And so what I want to say is we think through this question, okay, listen, we are in a, a, a moment when it's going to be enormously difficult to have an orthodox vision of Christianity. One thing I think is important for us to know is we tend to see very easily the way other people are going to give up the teachings of Jesus for other teachings. 
And that, that's true. Like, we, we probably do see that with clarity of other people. But that's not where we should spend our time. Where we should spend our time is looking at our own hearts and asking, where am I likely to abandon the teachings of Jesus and syncretize my faith to the customs of this world? To when our broader culture looks at me and says, listen, you're teaching things that are contrary to what we believe and practice as a broader culture, where I, I, I maintain fidelity to Jesus' teaching, his vision of the kingdom of God, and not bend my will to the world. So, first, how do we stay faithful to teaching? This isn't new. This is always a challenge for the Christian. But two, most importantly, who, who Jesus is and what he said, his vision of the kingdom of God, is the most compelling vision in the world. I mean, we've got a lot of visions in the last year or two that are throwing themselves out there, and it's, <laughs> they're not very compelling. And if we can stay tethered to the vision of the kingdom of God as Jesus laid out, right, this table hospitality fellowship, the grace of God extended to sinners that were all broken and yet received at the table of Jesus, that he is making all things new, that the, the, the vision of justice and the kingdom of God that is breaking is coming we stay tethered to that, we will create an alternative community that is compelling in a world of, of anger and outrage and division. But we have to be formed to the way of Jesus. And when our broader culture says they are teaching customs and practices that are contrary to what we want to see and happen, we say guilty is charged. And we will not move. So hospitality, formation, and then thirdly and finally, healing. So Paul and Silas, they preach the gospel. They free this, this woman, uh, this girl from uh, demonic oppression. Makes everyone mad. They get beaten. They get thrown in prison. Uh, they get released. And then we read this in verse uh, 40. After they're released from prison. So they went out of prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers and sisters, they encouraged them and departed. All right, so the... The story begins with Paul going to Philippi. There's no church. There's no Christians. And he, he offers the gospel. He liberates and forget, or offers the grace of God to Lydia, to the slave girl, to the jailer. But then at the end of the passage, it's, it's Paul actually entering into the home of Lydia and receiving that gospel hospitality as a source of healing for his own ordeal of prison and what he's just experienced. And that's the beauty of what the church is supposed to be, Right? Not Paul, the professional ministry guy who plants a bunch of churches, uh, who does all the work. But actually, it's, it's in his moment of, of weakness and vulnerability. He receives from the church what he had given himself initially. And I feel like that's a good stepping off point for me for the next three months as I enter into my, my sabbatical. Because a part of why Missy and I love this place is we feel that that reciprocal reality. We are just one of many sinners who gather in this place, who while um, I have certain tasks that, that put me on stage on a Sunday morning to preach the gospel, ultimately we are recipients in the same way that we want you to receive from us, which is the way it's supposed to be. And so as I take off for, um, for three months to, get my, to let my beard get totally out of control, uh, two things before I leave. First, sabbatical is important because it opens the door for other leaders. Right? If, if by me stepping out, it creates a vacuum for other people to fill, and that's really important. 
Um, so Paul goes to prison. He's, he's beaten, he's arrested, and he, he gets to go away. And what happens? Well, the church kept going. So much so that when Paul is released from prison, he's at Lydia's house to continue on the mission of, of the church. And listen, I don't, I don't plan to get arrested on sabbatical, but I am going away um, for three months. And I'm excited for the leaders who will get to step into the space that will be vacated by me stepping out. So there's our, our, um, our staff team. Uh, Carolyn is ministry assistant. Uh, her work was described. She keeps things on track. Like, my idea is I'm like, I want to have a lunch. And Carolyn's like, hey, have you planned for food at that lunch? I'm like, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And then Carolyn, there's food. It's amazing. Um, but Carolyn, she keeps us on track. And by me exiting out, creates more leadership space for her. Many of you, through your uh, children's ministry uh, interactions, you've interacted with Katie, who's a, a caring, uh, incredible pastoral presence. She has great ideas for where our church should go. By me and my loud mouth leaving the room for a while, it creates space for her to speak and to lead and to care for people in this, in this space. Um, also for, uh, for, for elder leadership, Derek's here as an elder. By me uh, stepping out, it creates space for him to come up and speak and to lead and to, um, to what I've seen behind closed doors, uh, his humility and his uh, wise directional thinking for you guys to see that and experience in ways I've gotten to. And obviously we'll have one pastoral presence left, or one person with the name pastor on staff tomorrow when I step out on to my sabbatical, and that's, and that's Joseph. And, and the, there's a few things I want to say about Joseph. One is, um, while he is a resident pastor and um, in, his, in his 20s, uh, Timothy's very clear, or Paul is very clear to Timothy that, that no one was to look down on him because of his youth, because Timothy had, de- had demonstrated himself as a, um, as a worthy servant of Christ. And so this is my word to you as I, as I exit. If, if there's a moment where you think to yourself, well, he's just a resident, he's in his mid-20s, he doesn't know yet, then you're, what you need to do is go have a little Bible study in that Timothy verse and, and change. Because <laughs> I'll tell you this, like, and I, listen, this, I, I can't think of higher praise I could say of anyone. I would gladly uh, go to a church Joseph was leading and sit under his teaching, his preaching. Because what I've seen behind closed doors is every bit as real as what you've seen in front of you here on um, Sunday mornings. The only thing is, as we've talked about before, um, when we talked to the staff about where the best pizza in Kansas City is, he said Domino's. <laughs> so do not let him order the pizza. Or, or do. I don't care. I'm not going to be here for three months. Uh, let them order Domino's, and you guys can eat up on that, and then you'll let me order the pizza when I come back. Uh, but it's, it's time to open the door for other leaders, and that's important because the church is not built on one person. So that's one. And then the second is, is what, what makes sabbatical important is what my vocation is as a pastor. And the best, I mean, there's a lot of things I could say about that, but the best, most succinct is Eugene Peterson from Working the Angles where he says this. The biblical fact is there are no successful churches. This is so true. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. The Holy Spirit gathers them, does his work in them. In these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called pastor and given a designated responsibility in the community. And the pastor's responsibility is to keep the community attentive to God. So my job is to, to make sure we continue to pay attention to God. And this will come as no surprise to any of us, but the last year and a half, it's been the hardest it's ever been to just pay attention to God. 
And that's work we all need to do together, but ultimately that is a primary part of my vocation, is in the midst of the chaos in this world to say, no, the, the most important thing that's happening in the world right now is God. And what is he doing? And so it's important to take a break, to be able to, to gather your senses, to pay attention to God. And so it's time for me to, to enter into that break, to pay attention to God, to pay attention to my family, to pay attention to my own soul. And I hope, even though you will not have the sabbatical in the same way that I will, that you will do the same. Because the reason sabbaticals have been common practices of people in the way of Jesus for a long time is because on the first page of the Bible is a Sabbath, is a rest. It's day seven of creation where God makes this incredible world and then says, don't you dare work. Stop. Go climb a mountain. Go make a drink. Go eat some food. Just go celebrate this world I have given to you. It's a sign from our God that he made us because he desires to rest and be present to us, to eat with us, for us to look around at the joy of his creation and to worship him. And it's why 2,000 years ago, God the Son took on flesh to enter into our world. And the primary thing he went around doing was just eating and drinking with anybody who wanted to do that with him listening to them, chasing them down in their exile and saying, can I bring you home? Jesus ate with so many people that the uptight people called him a drunkard and a glutton. But that was not because Jesus was a drunkard or a glutton, because he ate too much or drank too much. It was because Jesus never met anyone he didn't want to eat or drink with. And that includes me, and that includes you. Let's pray. Father, that's a, that's a bold claim to say that the God of the universe sent his son to this world to just sit at a table, to call us home from exile because he so desires to eat, to drink, to know, to heal, to rescue, to save us. And so all of us in our own way, God, either we just, we're living in that truth fully right now. And so God, just let those people ignore me because I can't help. <laughs> they're, they're there. But for those of us that are not there, we just open this space for your spirit to come and to impress those truths upon us that the God of the universe wants to eat with us, wants to drink with us, wants to create that safe and welcoming environment whereby we, strangers to you, our God, become your friends, become your sons, your daughters. So open that space now, we pray, spirit.